All right, so today's for the spirit is gentleness. So we're almost done. We just have self-control next week, and then it's Christmas time, and our Advent series cannot wait. So today's topic is gentleness and how the Holy Spirit creates gentleness in us and what gentleness actually looks like. Now, secular people, if you do not know this, secular people do not consider you, if, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, they don't consider you to be a gentle person. That's not the perception of a Christian in America. They see Christians as hypocrites. They see Christians as bigots. They see Christians as intolerant. And they see Christians many times as hostile towards people. They see themselves as gentler than Christians. They see gentleness as just let people do their own thing. Just let them be. They see gentleness as being non-confrontational. Being gentle is living and let live. But today we're going to look underneath the hood of what real gentleness is. And what I want to begin to impress upon you is this, is that that perspective of gentleness fails to address the deep complexities of life, the deep complexities of who you are as a human being, and the, the complexities of the interconnectedness of life. What a single person does has a deep and lasting impact on others. It doesn't matter if you are a pauper or if you are a prince. Your words and your actions do have an impact on those around you. It's inescapable. What a single person does has a deep and lasting impact on others. Gentleness is not letting you letting me live the way that I want to live. That's actually called indifference. And I believe that it's the opposite of genuine love. Today we're going to look at Paul's call in Galatians 6 for you as a Christian to be gentle as Christ was gentle and to be gentle with those who struggle. We are going to actually see how Jesus did this today. And we're going to compare it to how just people in the Bible did this to others. And then we're going to begin to think through how is it for us as Christians at Heritage, as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we begin to display gentleness with one another? And that's what today's about. Okay, you ready to get started? Let's get to our proposition. What you're going to see today is that the Holy Spirit grows a Christian to show the gentleness that they experienced in Jesus to the fallen, and to the weary. What you need to see is that as humans, you and I are not naturally as gentle as God is gentle. Are you okay with that? God is gentler than us, and God is the purest form of gentleness. He is gentleness. Like the rest of our character, we tend to live in one extreme or another my wife will tell you in a moment which extreme that I live in in terms of gentleness. <laughs> but the gospel alone, the gospel alone, not therapy, not philosophy, not having a personal coach on social media, the gospel alone restores our character by growing us into another person's character. Not the best version of yourself, not you 2.0, but the character of Jesus. Human beings on one extreme can be harsh 
and confrontational. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Now that's what secular people think of Christians. Or we can be indifferent on the other extreme to how people live their lives. But if you are truly a Christian, God is beginning a work in you. Whether you started over here, harsh and confrontational, or whether you start over here, indifferent, let people do their own thing. Your point of view of people, if you are a Christian, slowly begins to change day by day, moment by moment. And this is the result of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of you. Christians have one mission in this life, one mission. And it's not for you to become a greater income earner. And it's not for you to experience a greater degree of what is called the American dream. You get your life, you get your liberty, and you get your happiness. That's not why you're on this planet. You're not here to build your kingdom, your marriage, your family, your home. Those are all secondary. If you are a Christian, you have a singular mission. And it's not any of those things. And a part of this mission is beginning to see and approach people with the same gentleness that you first experienced in Jesus himself. The fallen and the weak, our focus, our foci this morning, are two kinds of people that need to experience the gentleness of Jesus that he first showed to you. That's part one. So for a moment, let's see what gentleness is not, and then what it is. Some non-examples. And then Jesus as the best example of gentleness. Now, if you have been laboring all throughout the year with our Bible reading plan, we are in the book of Job for the rest of the year, right? And even if you're not joining us, you have an opportunity next year. But even if you're not joining us, most likely you have read the book of Job before, heard something about the book of Job, or you were here when I did a survey through the book of Job. Job is weary beyond measure right now, if you were in the book of Job this morning with us. Job's friends have heard of his suffering, all that he has lost. They left their homes to come and be with their friend. They sat there for a week as Job just sat in the ashes, taking a pot shirt and scraping off the boils off his skin. They sat there, and they just waited. They just listened. Didn't say anything. But after that, it has been chapter after chapter of them speaking into his sufferings. In Job's friends, we actually find what the secular person thinks about you as a Christian. They are impatient with Job. They attack Job's character. They challenge his integrity with God. And i got to be honest, I understand what Job feels like. Those three things... People being impatient, attacking character, and challenging integrity. I have felt that more in the church than by people outside the church. And I live a secular life. I work in public education. And I've been attacked more by the church than by secular people. It's crazy, isn't it? They blame Job's current condition on himself and his sins. All right, so that's a non-example. Now you've got to think about the Corinthian church. I think I mentioned this to you, I don't know if it was last Wednesday or the Wednesday before, but we have Paul's letter called 1 Corinthians because it's a letter in response to a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. 
they were having issues. People wanting to sue each other, people being divided in the church, along with this faction here, this faction here, this faction here. They didn't understand spiritual gifts. They didn't understand marriage. They didn't understand sex. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses their indifference that's masqueraded as tolerance. In this church, there was a stepmom who was having sex with her stepson. That's pretty juicy, right? I mean, that's like drama. That could be a movie, an episode, a documentary, right? These new Christians, like us today, were engaged in a culture that is fallen and broken sexually. Every culture has a fallen and broken sexual ethic. In the first century Roman Empire, it was normal for a man to be married to a woman so he can have kids and continue the line, but it'd be normal, not the exception, the rule for a man in the Roman Empire to have multiple sexual partners. And for these Roman men, not only have multiple sexual partners, but also multiple homosexual partners. And the more aristocratic they were, to have multiple pedophilia relationships too. The notion from the 1950s and 60s that we have evolved sexually is a lie from America. It's a lie. We've always been fallen and broken. You can go back 1900 years, and there's insane things going on. In this church, people then came out of this, became a Christian, and then started applying the same sexual lies, the same sexual ethics that they did before Jesus. They've been a Christian for a day, a week, a month, a year, and those things are not unlearned over time. You know what Christians do? They carry these attitudes into church. Many of you, you literally carry your sins into church. You cannot do it, even while you're in church. These people became Christians and carried over their secular sexual ethics into church. And this church didn't address it, not heritage, the Corinthian church. The church knew exactly what was going on between the stepmom and the stepson, and they did nothing about it. And you know what secular culture would do? They would say, bravo, it's not your business. It's not your business. Live and let live. If they are not hurting anybody, who are you to say anything? Remember, America's number one value is individualism. Many of you get upset with me because I step on your individualism. It's your number one value, not Christ. It's you though you say you are a Christian. I understand. We're byproducts of our, of our culture. We're conditioned by culture more than Christ. So secular people would say, as they should, it is their business. What a person does with their body is their business, right? Sadly, that is a narrow and intolerant view, which is what they say about Christians. It fails to see the beauty and the depth and the brokenness of human sexuality. Ironically, the secular person thinks that the Christian is narrow-minded and intolerant. But here's the thing. Forcing any person to believe something that you believe is also intolerant and narrow-minded. Forcing a Christian to believe what a secular person believes about anything is intolerant and it is confrontational, and it's narrow-minded. This was not the Corinthian church being gentle. This was the Corinthian church being indifferent. 
Two non-examples. Let's get to Jesus, the example of gentleness. And I want you to think about Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees bring to him in the temple a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. They place her in the middle of the temple court. We think that it was the court of women. Holy of holies, the inner sanctum for the priests, then the court for the men, and then it's the court for the women, and then outside it's the court for the Gentiles. So they place Jesus and this woman in this court of women. So Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. We have stones ready to go. What do you say? You know, trying to trip him up. They want to stone her to obey what they consider to be God's law for when a person falls into sexual sin. Now, let's stop for a moment. That is exactly what secular society thinks about Christians, that we are ready with stones to throw at non-Christians for how they live their lives. Gentleness isn't needed right now for this woman, right? Judgment is, accountability, right? But we see two sides of Jesus' gentleness in John chapter 8. Jesus does not ignore her sexual sin. He doesn't. But on the other hand, he doesn't condemn her for her sexual sin. And both are needed to be truly gentle. If not, you're going to be struggling with harshness or you're going to struggle with indifference. In Jesus, we see him seeing her for where she is sexually and her brokenness, yet not condemning her for her sexual sin. And we know why, right, Christians? God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on her behalf, so that she might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus is actually harsher with the religious majority, the conservative right. Do you you see that? He was always harder on the cultural religious majority, or what America would call the religious right, than any other people group. He addresses their sexual sins long before he says anything to the adulterous woman. And we see before he even speaks to this woman, after Jesus does his thing, they drop their stones and they walk away. And John tells us the oldest religious person down to the youngest. Because the old religious person has lots of sins, right? So Jesus is left alone in the court of women with this adulterous woman. And he addresses her sexual sins. He asks her first, where are those who condemn you? And the woman's like, there's no one, Lord. No one is here. And Jesus says two things to her. The first thing he says is, I don't condemn you. And the second thing that he says is, go and sin no more. Those two things together is true gentleness. That's it. Secular society would be okay with the first statement. Right? I don't condemn you. Jesus, you're my homeboy right here. Love it. But they would have a problem with the second statement. They would say it is in anyone's place to tell someone what to do with their sex lives. And they have it all wrong. Sex, beyond America, beyond the 21st century, is God's idea. Do you realize it was one of the very first things that was created? Do you realize that? It's as old as Genesis 1. 
Sex is God's idea. God created sex. God created you as male and female, equal image bearers of God. And here's the thing. Creators have sovereign rights over their creation, right? If I create a song, it's my song, not your song, right? If I want to change the melody, I can change it. If I want to go to a minor key here, I can go to a minor key here. It's my creation. But we do not give God the same creator rights and privileges. Why? Because from Adam and Eve on, we want to be God, right? But here's the thing. Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity. Jesus is light of the world. That's what he says to her after this. I'm light of the world. And that means for this woman that he is light into her sexuality and our sexuality. As God in light, Jesus does not ignore her sin. And as God in light, Jesus doesn't dehumanize her for her sin. And once again, you need both of these things to be truly gentle. Jesus shows himself as redeemer and as light in this woman's dark place. The woman could give up on her sexual ways because Jesus took on her sexual sin. Jesus did not condemn the woman that day in the court of women because Jesus took on flesh to take on her condemnation. This is the model heritage for you and I. When we engage with those who fall and for those who are weary, they need to see the same gentleness that Jesus showed to this adulterous woman and show to you, they need to experience it as well. They need to see us, like Jesus, not condemn them, but not to ignore their sin as well. So grace is not indifference. Grace is not letting people do whatever they want. But truth is not smacking a person with Scripture when they have fallen or when they are weak. Grace and truth is in Christ Jesus. Now, can we think about something together for a moment? I want you to think about this adulterous woman, but I want you to conceive in your mind what she was like 10 years in the future. It's still the first century. She still lives in Jerusalem. This is now maybe nine and a half years, maybe nine years after the resurrection of Jesus. She's a Christian now in the very first church on the planet in Jerusalem. Jesus' half-brother James is her pastor. Are we there? And in this church in Jerusalem, she meets a sister. And this is a younger sister, new to Christianity, just heard the gospel. And as she meets this young woman and invests in her, she sees her younger self in this woman. Because this woman, just like she was years ago, was stuck in her sexual ethics and stuck in her sexual sin, her ideas on sexuality. When this young woman told the formerly adulterous woman of what's going on in her life, how do you think the older woman responded? How do you think the woman of John 8 would respond to this young sister in Jerusalem's church? Do you think she would have walked over to the nearest stone to stone her? Do you think she would have swept her sexual sin underneath the rug? The truth is somewhere in that middle, right? Neither extreme. Jesus has done a work in this woman. Jesus was gentle with her when no other man was. And in return, she would be gentle with this younger woman. And what I'm telling you this morning 
is that this, more than showing up today, more than making a profession of faith, more than getting dunked in this, whatever you call this baptismal, that's so cold and muddy sometimes, this right here is the greater proof that you are a Christian. This right here. Because Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, the proof of his indwelling, is if you are growing to be gentler as days go by. Without the Holy Spirit, you are either going to be too passive and indifferent, or you're going to be too harsh or too critical towards the sinner and those who suffer. Christians in America need to show the gentleness of Jesus, that he doesn't ignore sin, but he doesn't condemn sin in others as well. He takes sin upon himself. And that's where we're going through these five verses today. So let's get started with our first point, where you're going to see that it is your mission, your mission, to restore the fallen and to bear the weary, and that these two priorities are proofs that the Holy Spirit is working inside of you. It's actually proof that you're a Christian. Not if we gave you a little certificate that memorialized the day that you were baptized. Some churches do that. At Heritage this year, back in January, we clarified our mission as Christians and boiled down to three things. And this is our focus moving in the future. We are to love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus or our dying day. We are to spend time with people who are not like us. That means non-Christians so that they can see Christ in us. And then three, you and I are meant to open up our lives to invest in this church. That's radical generosity. And for this church to invest in us. That's discipleship. In point one, we see that a ministry of restoring the fallen and bearing with the weary fulfills all three purposes for us as Christians. Now, verse one does not sit well with American culture because we value individualism above all things. We are too indifferent to what those around us really need because we are too absorbed in ourselves. And this impacts the church too because it's not like you become a Christian and you walk into this church and your self-absorption stops. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a year or 10 years. Your self-absorption doesn't stop. But Jesus says, my kingdom come, my will be done over yours. The first person who needs to experience the gentleness of Jesus is the person that is stuck in their sins. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And then here it is, in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, I'm sure some of you in your mind right now, you're like, ha ha, I got you, pastor. I'm so happy right now because this verse are for those who consider themselves to be spiritual. I don't consider myself to be spiritual. I'm too refined for that. Therefore, this verse is not for me. If that's you, Hold on a second. That would be a misapplication and a misinterpretation of this verse right here. If you are truly a Christian, guess what? 
we are spiritual. You want to know why? Because at the moment of salvation, and over the years I have faithfully tried to teach this to you, at the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Not 50% and you need a second experience. 100% at the moment of you being born again. If you're a Christian, you're spiritual. Sorry. Whether you consider yourself to be spiritual or not, you're spiritual. And this is your verse. This is your mission. This is why you get up in the morning, not to make another $50 an hour. I don't know anybody's making $50 an hour. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of y'all are close, depending on what you do. Being spiritual has nothing to do with how you see yourself. It's being spiritual is all about what God has done for you in Jesus and the indwelling of his spirit. Once again, this verse is three sentences after the fruits of the spirit. This is the nearest and most logical, sensical explanation for what the fruits of the spirit looks like in the life of a Christian. Verses 1 and 2 are the first applications of what it means the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Christians are called to play their part in restoring the fallen. And you know what that implies? you got to be close enough to people to know when they fall. That's what it implies. And you know what that also implies? 90 minutes on Sunday mornings, though some of you think that's too much. It's true. It is true. And some of you may think that two hours on a Wednesday night is too long. We're taking a break. So you can get your fill. But you cannot do this if all you do is see your brothers and sisters for a combination of less than 300 minutes per week. You can't do this. You can't. To be able to do this you also have to acknowledge that Christians still sin. And I am a Christian. Therefore, I still sin. We'll get to that later. Sin is believing that you can live one nanosecond without God. Sin is believing anyone or anything is more important or more enjoyable than God. In fact, whatever it is that you believe is more enjoyable than God is your God. It doesn't matter if you're here every single Sunday, every time the door is open. Every event, everything we do, it does not matter. If you believe that anyone or anything is more enjoyable than God, that is your functional God. When a Christian is overtaken by the idea that they can live without God. The suffering has lessened, so you don't need God as much. That someone or something is more enjoyable than God. 6-1 kicks in. Their brothers, adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, move to restore them. But how do you even know if your brother or sister has fallen? That's why at Heritage we make it very clear what it means to be a Christian. We make it very clear to you. And we talk about things like a pattern. Not perfection, but a pattern, right? A pattern of attendance. A pattern of serving. 
a pattern of giving, a pattern of praying, Bible reading, right? So when that pattern is broken, we know perhaps something is going on, right? That's what we do as heritage Christians. This is how we love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus. Jesus took on flesh to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So the wolf eats him instead of the sheep. So what does it mean? What does it look like to restore a Christian who falls? It means that you're able to see that they are in need of repair. A couple weeks ago, um, Jesse's dad, Claire's husband, replaced pads on our vehicle. <laughs> and it was so funny. Like, bless his heart. Bless his heart. I'm in his, like, big old garage thing. And he shows me Tisa's old pads. He's like, see how bad this was? <laughs> no, David. I don't see how bad this was. I don't know what I'm looking at. He had an eye for something that I did not because he's been around it long enough. But I fear that maybe as Christians in America, we cannot sense that our brothers and sisters are in need of repair because we don't even know what we're looking at. Or we may not even be looking at it at all. As Christians, this begins by saying that we all believe that we are still in need of repair all the way up to your pastor. But it also means that in the ultimate sense, I cannot repair you. You know the number one killer in pastors is depression and suicide. You know that? And I think that that drift begins when they tend to think that it's their responsibility to change the sheep. It's their responsibility to change people. I cannot change you. And if that was the case, eight years going on nine, I might as well just quit if I think that I'm supposed to be the one that changes you. Christians are not the mechanism. They're not the, the power behind your repair. Christians are simply the conduit. When Christians approach each other with the gentleness of Jesus, a gentleness that doesn't ignore sin on one side, but doesn't dehumanize the sinner on the other side, God begins the work of repairing them. Remember how Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery. This woman was living out her own vision, her own ideas about sex and sexuality. She disregarded God's design. She disregarded how God created her as his image bearer. And Jesus didn't condemn her. He didn't ostracize her. Jesus spoke into her views and spoken to her experience with sex and sexuality. He doesn't overlook it, but he speaks new purpose into her when she is at her lowest. And that is what repair looks like. That is what restoration looks like. This is an example of what we need to do when our brothers and sisters in Christ fall. Good with that? Verse 2. Paul then says, to bear one another's burdens, and that this fulfills the law of Christ. We see a second kind of person who deserves to experience the gentleness of Jesus, and that is the person who is weary from their burdens. Paul calls on Christians 
those in whom the Holy Spirit indwells, to bear the burdens of the weary. This means that we are to pick up not stones, but we are to pick up the burdens and the luggage, the things that people are carrying around, and put it on ourselves for a while as their adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. And this necessitates, once again, that you must know when that person is suffering. In order to know that they are suffering, you have to be around them long enough to know the ebbs and the flows of their pattern. Paul says that bearing the burdens of the weak is actually what fulfills the law of Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says something like this. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke, learn from me. I'm sorry, Christianity is about learning. He says, learn from me. I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. Jesus is the standard of gentleness. And that is your motivation for coming to him with your weariness. Jesus will not pretend that you're not struggling. Jesus will take on your struggles. In fact, Heritage, he already took on your struggles on his shoulders when he took the cross. Paul says to you right now, he says, you are to be like this for your fellow Christians. How can we love the non-Christian the way that Jesus wants us to when we can't even demonstrate this kind of love to each other? Paul says, you are to put your yoke on the weary and carry their burden for a while. So we see two priorities for every Christian. doesn't matter if you don't consider yourself spiritual. If you're a Christian, you're spiritual. You are to restore the fallen, and you are to bear the burdens of the weary. You are to do so with the same gentleness that Jesus showed to you when he restored you and your sins, and when he bore your sufferings. And here's the reality. Only Christians can do this. Only Christians can do this. Because only Christians know what this feels like. In the world, you're going to find people who will either condemn you or just say, it doesn't matter to me, man. Be whatever you want to be. You're going to find those two types of people in the world. But in the church, we shouldn't find either extreme. That's the gold standard. The question is, how do we get there? And we are reminded that this is a byproduct. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in us. So how do we get there? Let's begin to think about it as we move to application. Let's take a look. So the call today for us is examination. I mean, if you don't like to think and we don't like to learn, you're probably not going to like this either. But unfortunately, Christianity is also loving the Lord our God with all our mind. I didn't make it up. The call today is for you to examine yourself before speaking into someone's sins and sufferings. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught us about the speck and the log? We went through this this year. I forgot how many uh, gathers that I taught this year. 35 gathers. One of those gathers, if you remember, Vernon was up here with me. He taped a, like a, like a little wood chip, I think. I think he taped it like on your head. 
and they had this big old log, right? You remember that? Okay, good, good. Through that, we learned it is quite human of us to think that people's sins are so much bigger than our sins, right? My sins, oh, they're just specks. Your sins, oh man, they are logs. That's human nature. But in reality, your sins are the logs that obscure your ability to see God and to see people in the dignity in which he created them as his image bearers. That's what these logs do. Many of us believe that our sins are specks that just merely splintered the body of Jesus. Oh, but in reality, our sins are the logs that Jesus' body was nailed to. Self-examination reminds us of this. If you see the sins of others as logs, but your own personal sins as specks, I think you may need to reconsider whether you have experienced the gentleness of Jesus. I'll say that one more time. If you view what people do as the problem, bigger and worse than what you do, I would challenge you to reconsider whether you have truly experienced the gentleness of Jesus in the first place. Self-examination is an essential Christian practice. And it's essential practically because it helps us continue to see people as we should. Fallen, broken, and beautiful image bearers of God. Let's look at verse 3. Paul says, okay, so if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And that's the crazy thing about sin. That's a crazy thing about you having a log in your life, but you see it's just a speck. You're delusional. You're only deceiving yourself. Everybody on the outside sees the log, but you. Self-examination is meant to help you see yourself for who you really are. And you're not alone in this. You have the scriptures, and you have the Holy Spirit as the power behind your self-examination. We cannot do anything without Jesus sustaining us to do it. We cannot live one nanosecond if Jesus does not sustain us, even the atheist. Sin begins with the thought that we can. You see, sin deceives. So you and I are sinners. This means that you and I are deceived about ourselves, about each other, and about what life is really about. It's not about building your kingdom. It's about building his kingdom. It is the Holy Spirit who works this practice of self-examination in you to see yourself for where you truly are. The Holy Spirit encourages and exhorts and convicts the Christian. For weeks on Wednesday nights, you've been saying this is the true work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's conviction, and you're right. This helps us approach the fallen and the weary with gentleness because our sins become the same size as their sin. We need this work in our lives because we are naturally self-deceptive. We think that our sins are specks and the sins of others are logs when in fact 
our sins are just as logos as theirs. Let's look at verse 4. Paul says, Each one must examine his own work, and then he will have regard, reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Self-examination helps you see where you were, where you are, so you can see where you're going, so you can see what Jesus has done for you, is doing for you, and what he's going to continue to do for you. So here's the thing. You and I all boast in something. All you need to figure out what you boast in is follow your money and follow what you talk about. That's your boast. Would it say that Jesus is your boast today? What you talk about? And if we got to see a printout of your checking account? We all find our glory, our enjoyment, our meaning in someone or something. It's what it means to be human, because God created us in his image. Examining your own life will help you find out what you boast in, what you glory in, what you find the most enjoyment in. And what you boast in, what you depend on, what you ultimately find satisfaction in is your functional God. And if it's not Jesus, you're playing church. Before you come alongside another Christian in their sins and in their sufferings, you must check to see where your boast is. Now let's look at our final verse. Because this is a strange verse from Paul. He says, each one bears his own load. And that sounds American right there. That's individualism right there. But let's not jump to misapplication and misinterpretation so fast. This sounds contradictory to verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, bear the burdens of the weary. And then verse 5, bear your own load. Which one's true? They're both true. Do you get that? They're not contradictory. They're complementary. Do you get that? See, many of us who read the Bible so we can find the exceptions for us to excuse our, our speculous sins. The load that the Christian bears is self-examination. That's one of our loads. You can't do it for me. I can't do self-examination for you. We must daily ask the Holy Spirit and say something like this, Holy Spirit, I naturally see my sins as specks. Everybody else, yourself included, see them for what they are as logs. Help me. We should pray that every day. That's going to change the way you see people. It's going to change your criticism. It's going to change your judgment of them. They're going to be just as human as you are. And who knows the ministry that God would open up if we approached our brothers and sisters like this. We must do this before we come alongside the fallen and the weary to show them the gentleness of Jesus that doesn't condone their sin, but also doesn't sweep it under the rug. As the people of Jesus, we must stop saying, a brother or sister's sins or sufferings is their business, not mine. Who am I? That could not be further from the gospel and further from what Jesus wants for his people. Answer this question. Did Jesus leave you alone in your sins? Did Jesus leave you alone in your sufferings? Do you realize Jesus isn't here in the flesh, right? Do you realize you are called the body of Christ? You're the hands. You're the feet of Christ. Not just the clergy. You are, right? 
Clardy's job is to train you to go do the ministry. Do you get that? You're the hands. You're the feet. How else are they going to experience a gentleness of God that doesn't condone their behavior, but doesn't sweep it under the rug unless they see it in you? How else? I don't know the answer. So leaving people in their own business is not tolerance. It is indifference. And indifference is the opposite of love. We don't sit idly by. We move to action. And we examine ourselves so the Holy Spirit can show us whether the cross is our boast or whether something else is. And then we move to action to play our part in the process of God restoring the fallen. And God in Christ bearing the burdens of the weary. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and now gentleness. And we conclude next week with self-control.